and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and I just searched my coffee. Searched? Isn't that like mints? No, well, that's true, <laughs> but it really means to gulp down something quickly. Oh. Like it's spelled Z, I'm sorry, X-E-R-T-Z. Oh, that's Zerts. a new one for me. Yeah, me too. Nice. And I don't recommend it if it's really hot. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah, so. Um, how are you, Courtney? You know, I'm a little tired today. I'll yeah. be honest. Mm-hmm. Lesbianist? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's okay, because I'm, you know, on my fourth cup of coffee, so I'm, I'm feeling like I can pick up your energy, okay. like pick up for you. All right, you might need be to. enough for both of us, and maybe today you'll be the slow one. Maybe. We'll I'll be, see. And I'll be like the um, super, um, yeah, never mind. Obviously, I can't even come up with the word. So, okay. Well, <laughs> that's uh, all right. Well, it's my question today. Yeah, so that's I your can question. at least okay. start with that. Fire away. Yeah. Give me a brain buster. Okay. So, Trisha, would you rather have a pause button or a rewind button for your life? Rewind. Like you could go back and redo things? Yeah, I mean, I guess that would mean I would like, re- you know, try to fix regrets. But a lot of times I, if I paused, I, I just don't have the impulse to pause, I guess. Hmm. I don't know. So just knowing how I am, I um, don't have a filter a lot of the time. So the rewind button would be better than the like taking a pause and seeing if it's right to say that. Because hmm. okay. then I could gauge gauge if I need to rewind based on the reaction I got from what I said. I suppose that's true. I can see that. But I don't know. What about you? I think I would go with a pause button. Yeah. I think I'd like to be able to spend longer like enjoying the things in my life that I want to enjoy before oh. like things happen or mm-hmm. I get old and can't do them anymore or whatever the case may be. Did you watch that movie with Adam Sandler? That click movie? Yeah. Yeah. And he got to pause and rewind and Mm. fast forward. Yep. Yeah. I had an awkward date to that movie. Really? When I was in high school. That was like the movie you went out on a date with and it was that one? Yep. The first date I went out with Chris or movie I went out with Chris like freaking 19 years ago was Napoleon Dynamite. (laughs) (laughs) my sister recommended it to me and I had no idea what it was I was like okay my sister said this was funny and Chris was like whatever I'll go along you can pick and then we both loved that movie oh so funny still so funny just today we were just talking about it yeah apparently when I sing karaoke I sound like Kip per Chris so right still a big part of your life still a big part of my life yes it is so that was a fun question. Yeah, thanks. Um, so we're going to wrap up Tommy Lynn Cells today. Thank the baby Jesus. Yes. Uh, but if you want to, if you can, if your brain allows you, can you give us a recap? Yes. So last week on episode two, Tommy Lynn was all about murdering and murdering and murdering some more. So murdered several women, going back and forth across the country, murdered a the Doreen family mm-hmm. in a horrific Dardine way. Dardine? Dardine, yes, yeah. that's correct. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then moved on 
murdered some more people, and then ended up ODing on drugs and being hospitalized. Um, I told you this at work, but my friend Sarah, hi Sarah, told me that um, on that episode, they actually, her whole office kind of talked about it because it was so, I'm assuming because it was so shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this this case is a tough one. I, they're all, I, I hate saying it like that. Like they're all freaking horrible. But a lot of the times, you know, we try to get down to the analysis of what's going on psychology wise. And then the other stuff that happens is kind of more like detail that we provide for the listener so they can understand the story. Mm-hmm. But this one, the detail is so gruesome that it's affecting people. Right. I think. And I think part of it too is that. In a lot of the other cases, there have been more non-murdery things happening mm-hmm. in the killer's lives that we could sort of get a break from yeah. the killing to talk about. But kind of like the whole story in this case is just one murder after the next. And um, I don't know that I said this, but the book that we are using, the author actually like did interviews with Tommy Lynn Sells. That is how she got most of the information um, it's straight from his mouth. Right. So we might bring this up later, but, you know, some of this cannot be proved, what what was said. Um, but some of the things, you know, could have, like, did make sense with the bodies that were found and the information that he knew. Right. To um, give justification that he was telling the truth. But just in case that wasn't um, clear, this book was written with the help of Tommy Lynn Sells. Right, right. Okay, so here we go. Um, so we left off last time with Tommy doing some rehab stints, and he's now on the road again uh, in Rollins, Wyoming this time. So Sells randomly did a Robin Hood act while there. There was a couple on the road stranded with a truck needing new tires, and the woman was pregnant, and Sells offered to help them and what he did was he looked around for a truck with similar tires stole the truck then took those tires off and put them on the couple's truck and then he left um Courtney what do you think about this this is kind of out of character seemingly I mean I think he probably got the thrill from stealing the truck to steal the tires um and so even this act of generosity was also an act of like criminal rebellion Hmm. he ended up getting caught for this eventually and actually was arrested um, for public intoxication. He was found to be indigent. I said it right, this case. Woohoo! Couldn't say it during <laughs> Anthony so well. Uh, and the case was put on pause as he was looked into for mental health problems. He was transferred to the Wyoming State Hospital for 30 days. So the doctors there noted that Sells claimed to hear the dragon, the bird, and the wolf talking to him and telling him to do things. And I think he had tattoos on his body that matched these um, creatures. They also found that Tommy imbibed in alcohol, pot, coke, heroin, meth, and hallucinogenics, and that a complete withdrawal might end in psychosis. So they gave him the diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder. He was easily provoked and impulsive, and this all led to great frustration and anger, which we have seen. 
he was also unable to write or read. So he was illiterate at this time. So that was probably due to him pretty much dropping out of high school in the third grade, you know, around when Pa Brown gave him alcohol. He was also given the diagnosis of depressive disorder, severe drug dependence, polysubstance abuse, and borderline and schizoid features to go along with the ASPD. He was prescribed five milligrams of Halidol, Haldol, and five milligrams of Cogentin. Courtney, uh, break down what we've just what I've just told you, please. Yeah. Um, well, it's quite a cocktail of substances. Um, most of which can cause psychotic symptoms on their own, let alone when mixed together. And, you know, all of which, too, when taken in high doses for a long time, if there is psychosis that's come with it, there can be lingering psychosis once you taper off as well. Um, So in terms of his, you know, hearing these animals telling him to do things, I wonder how much of that was just drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I definitely agree that we're looking at antisocial personality disorder. You know, Tommy had that clear pattern of criminal behavior, including violence, impulsivity, lack of empathy and guilt, and substance use that, you know, started way back in his childhood. You know, age eight is when he took that first drink, right? So... Um, You know, and back in episode one, when we were talking about his childhood, you know, I suggested that he likely had conduct disorder at that time, um, which is the childhood precursor to antisocial personality disorder. And then kind of with the other diagnoses, you know, he likely did experience depression. I wouldn't be surprised if he did, given his experiences of rejection, abuse, and kind of the lonely way that he lived his life. Um, and it's a pretty common disorder to be, um, cormo, cormorid mm-hmm. with, um, antisocial personality disorder. So it often goes along with it essentially. Mm-hmm. And then as for the features of kind of borderline personality disorder and schizoid personality disorder, this just means that he had kind of some symptoms or features associated with those, but not enough to, um, like meet diagnosis criteria for mm-hmm. it. Um, so for example, Like, repeated suicide attempts would be a feature of borderline personality disorder. And kind of paranoid distrust of others could be a feature of schizoid personality disorder. And with the borderline being the prime motivator is abandonment or one of the prime things. I mean, he was abandoned. (laughs) He was, yes. (laughs) So, I mean, there could be some of that there. Definitely. What about the, do you anything about those medications? Do you feel like that was appropriate? I know you're not a prescriber, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Haldol is um, like an antipsychotic and okay. um, what's the word I'm looking for? It like super calms you out. Okay. Um, like a sedative. Mm-hmm. Um, so it could help potentially with any of those psychotic symptoms you may have been having and also to just like calm everything down mm-hmm. calm his brain down right i am not as familiar with cogentin i'll okay. be honest okay well this was way back in the day so mm-hmm. um so uh, here we go i'm scrolling i'm scrolling okay so this was the report that the judge gave for competency for him to appear after meeting with these psychiatrists quote the defendant maintains the capacity to comprehend his position to understand the nature and object of the proceedings against him to conduct his defense in a rational manner and to cooperate with his counsel to the end that any available defense may be interposed he is presently competent to stand trial even though mentally ill 
and will remain competent in the foreseeable future, even in the absence of any specific treatment for his mental illness. So Courtney, even with all of the above diagnosed mental, mental disorders, they still found him competent to stand trial. So, you know, I'd be interested in seeing a case where they actually deem someone incompetent. I mean, it seems pretty dang hard to get that organically. I mean, unless you have a lawyer that's able to weave and convince, but to actually be found not competent. Do you agree with the um, statement that he was competent? I do agree with the judge's ruling. You know, competence in this case means that a person understood at the time of the crime and is currently able to understand what they did and the potential consequences for having done it. Um, You know, a person can have any number of mental illness diagnoses but still be based in reality and know the difference between right and wrong, right? So even if he does have personality disorders and depression, he still knows that killing people is... Mm-hmm. considered wrong in society and that there are consequences for it, essentially. Um, you know, and it's very hard to prove insanity. Um, but there actually is a recent case where a person was deemed incompetent to stand trial. Um, I don't know if you've been following at all, mm-hmm. but Ron Jeremy, the, a, you know, the porn I know, star. I know he is, yeah. Yeah, so he very recently, like within the last couple of months, um, has been on trial for a past sexual assault claim. Um, but he was deemed incompetent to stand trial due to advanced dementia mm. that impacts his memory and his ability to recognize reality from fiction. So he's not able to participate in his defense because not he's not able to know and remember like right. what really happened. His memory is mm. shot. He can't say what's real and what wasn't real. How old is he? Do you know? I think he's in his 50s or 60s. He's only that young. It's like early onset. Yeah. Okay. I thought he was older than that. Maybe 60s. Well, I mean, he just has mm-hmm. always looked old. Not yes. old, but like. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I might be wrong. I am not an expert on porn stars. You're not? But no. That surprises me. I know. Very surprising. <laughs> well, thanks for that. Um, I, I watched some YouTube series or something on YouTube when I was interested in this earlier. And there was, um, they showed a a person who was, uh, they showed their interview there with the police confessing to a crime. And they, sh- they said later he was found incompetent to stand trial because he was very insistent, but he didn't know he did something wrong. And you could tell by the interview that they did that he felt very justified in what he did, um, for the, I can't remember the specifics, but it was an interesting um, interview to watch. I'm sure you could find anything like that on YouTube where they do find people occasionally who just don't know what they did was wrong at the time. And they don't know after the fact that what they did was wrong. Right. They just don't have an understanding of it. Mm -hmm. So after uh, he was returned to the jail, he was rushed to the ER because he was having severe shakes He was diagnosed with having panic attacks, and six days later, he was taken back to the ER with even worse shaking, and this time his speech was also slurred, and he was having muscle spasms. He couldn't stop stuttering. They decided that his medications may be to blame, so they played around with the dosage and different therapies, and it appeared to do the trick. In prison, he was a good prisoner, and he didn't cause trouble. He even completed a barber course and worked in the leather shop. He was released in January 1991, ending up spending about a year in jail at that time. On December 9th that year, Tommy struck again, this time in Mariana, Florida, right after the Christmas parade. So he got over his fear of snakes and went back at least for a little while. Uh, Teresa Hall and her five-year-old daughter, Tiffany, went home after a long day at the Christmas parade, and they went to bed. 
Tommy Lynn kicked open their front door and grabbed a coffee table and smashed it into many pieces. He then grabbed a leg and beat Teresa to death and then did the same thing to little Tiffany. He left the scene, taking the table leg with him. A completely senseless act of violence. I mean, I, I don't know the provocation there, but we've seen it doesn't need much. In March of 92, four months after this incident, Tommy was arrested in South Carolina for drunkenness. He was released with time served and then arrested again the next month for the same charge. After being released this time, he left and headed for West Virginia. May 13, 1992, Tommy was panhandling in Charleston, West Virginia, and Fabian Witherspoon took pity on him. He told her a sad story about how he and his wife lived under a bridge and had nothing to eat. So she invited him to her house to give him some food. Um, it did say that she felt a little sexual attraction for him. Uh, that might have had something to do as well. But she did end up giving him a whole big bag of food and another big bag of clothing. While she was looking for some underwear that Tommy said his wife needed, he held a knife to her throat. He demanded she take off her clothes, which she did, and then he forced her to her knees to fillet him. He then raped her, then made her shower, where he again assaulted her. When he got her out of the shower, um, he again tried to assault her from behind, and she was, like, leaning over the toilet. And she grabbed a porcelain duck that was on the back of the toilet and smashed it on his head. And she hit him over and over and over again with that duck. She also got a knife, um, got the knife from Tommy and started to run, but he grabbed her. She stabbed him, but he somehow got the knife back and cut her, but then she got the knife back again. And they rolled around um, until eventually he gained control and was able to bind her hands and feet. He found a piano stool and beat her savagely with it. He then grabbed a few items and scattered them around. Um, he had not killed her, though, Courtney, so... Yay. Finally. <laughs> I know, right? She was able to get out of her bonds and call 911. When the police came to find her, Sergeant Richard Westfall said, quote, I have never seen a person alive with so much blood on her. Fabian was able to describe her attacker, and he even gave her his real name. He told her his name was uh, Tommy Sells. So she told them that he was Tommy Sells, who lived by the river. Luckily, after some follow-up, they actually found Tommy at a, quote, friend's apartment, laying down all bloody. When he was taken to the hospital, it was found that Tommy had um, a spleen and kidney injury, a partially collapsed lung, and that his testicles were cut up. Sweet. Go Fabian. <laughs> right? So, Courtney, this seems like it should have been the end, the end of Tommy's spree of terror and depravity, but it isn't. So it turns out that Fabian had a prior sexual assault charge lodged against another man that had never made it to trial, and she had a history of mental illness, so guess what? You know what. Yep. They made a deal. The sexual assault, char assault charges were dropped. Tommy got a, quote, indeterminate term of not less than two years and not more than 10 years for malicious wounding. He was granted 492 days off for time served for the sentence and went into the Moundsville, West Virginia prison. I guess we're lucky they didn't turn around and charge Fabian for the same thing. Um. Courtney, this could have been the end for Tommy. Perhaps had those sexual assault, char assault charges stuck or even attempted murder, as that was what it really was, he would have been behind bars for a long, long time. It is so incredibly frustrating. You know, like this is Robert Hansen and Anthony Sowell all mm -hmm. over again, put together and then times like 10. You know, and I just don't understand why it was so difficult for law enforcement kind of 
I was going to say prior to recent days, but even recent days, Mm -hmm. just why is it so hard for law enforcement to believe and support women? Because, you know, she had a mental illness, even though look at what Tommy was diagnosed with in prison. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And she had been assaulted before. Right. So that means you can't be assaulted again. Right. Somehow. At least she kicked the shit out of him. That's true. She put up a valiant fight. Yes. Tommy was not as good of a prisoner this time. In fact, he somehow got his hands on a firearm in prison that he intended to sell for drugs, and he got caught hiding it in the warden's office. He was then transferred to a maximum security prison because of this. He did learn to read and write, though, while he was incarcerated. Um, So I, I guess good for him. I don't know. Also at this time, he befriended an intellectually impaired female by the name of Nora. She would come visit him at a prison, at the prison, and they would write letters to each other. Tommy definitely took advantage of her. He got Nora to buy him things while incarcerated and eventually proposed marriage to her. She accepted and they were married at the correctional facility. Tommy then started receiving more than half of her social security checks while in prison. He then was diagnosed as bipolar, not treated for it, and then released. Courtney? You know, for Tommy, Nora was, unfortunately for her, a very easy victim. You know, manipulation and deceit for personal and monetary gain are classic psychopath behavior. Um, So it's not surprising at all that he would do this Mm -hmm. to her. You know, and the fact that she was impaired would have just made it even easier to trick her. Um, And as for the new diagnosis, you know, I haven't really seen evidence of clear manic versus depressive episodes that would indicate bipolar disorder. Um, you know, and to be honest, if there was bipolar disorder, I would trust that the psychiatrist in the state hospital probably would have recognized it. Yeah, he was there for 30 days, I think. Right. Or he was in a couple places for 30 days at a time. Yeah, he was in the hospital for 30 days. Yeah. When Tommy got out in May of 1997, he left Nora and, and started traveling again. But he must have needed something because then he went back to Nora. And they went on a trip together and hitched uh, rides to Tennessee, where Tommy abandoned Nora a month later. Now, Nora couldn't leave on her own, and she ended up going back to West Virginia completely heartbroken. But in September, Tommy went back and got Nora, who is now pregnant, and took her to his mom's house in Missouri. Tommy claims he then killed 10-year-old Joel Joel Kirkpatrick in October that year by stabbing him in his sleep. 13-year-old Stephanie Mahaney, uh, Mahani, um, was kidnapped from her home by Tommy Lynn after a long day of sitting at her mother's bedside at the local hospital. Her mom's fiancé had brought her and her siblings home, and she was just exhausted. So when Tommy crept into her room and put duct tape on her mouth, you know, she tried to get away, but unfortunately he was able to drag her from the house and into the van he was driving. And every time she tried to make a move to escape, he would hit her in the face and at one point, to try to get her to stop trying to escape, he injected her with cocaine. When he stopped the car, he removed her pants and forced her to gratify him with her mouth and then raped her. After all of this, he strangled her for five minutes. She eventually succumbed to his death grip, and with that, you know, he dropped her body into a nearby pond along with her torn clothing. He then left. Her body would not be discovered for over a month. Tommy left Nora for good around this time, even though she was several months pregnant with his child. Tommy's mother arranged for an adoption for the child since Nora was not mentally equipped to handle it, and neither was Tommy's mom um, to care for an infant. 
Tommy was now employed as a carnival worker in South Texas. He met Jessica Levery. I don't know how to spell it, say that. That's how I would say it. Okay. At one of these fairs when she took her kids to go have some fun, they struck up a conversation and she invited Tommy back to her place. And I guess it was a love connection between the two of them and they were soon living together with Jessica's children in Del Rio. Tommy apparently really tried to do the family thing. You know, he'd help get the kids to school and he'd write love poems to Jessica. He would take the kids fishing and help with projects. He also helped care for the many pets the family had. Tommy even gave up drugs and alcohol um, and kept a steady job. So it was like he may have finally, finally found a home. Courtney, what do you think sets this family apart from the others? You know, it's hard to say for sure, but my guess would be that ultimately he felt understood and accepted by Jessica in a way that he just hadn't experienced before, you know, and perhaps, you know, he was able to see her first in like a motherly role, right? He saw her first at the fair with her kids um, and saw that part of her before he saw her as a potential sexual partner. Um, And maybe he was particularly drawn to that aspect of her, you know, her being a good mom, um, given the failings of his own mother. And it could just come down to the old adage, the heart wants what the heart wants. Right. Like, why was this family different than the other ones that he's befriended and then murdered? Could have just been the something clicked. Mm -hmm. Yep. Tommy and Jessica would marry on October 22nd, 1998. Unfortunately, Tommy returned to drugs and alcohol and started to miss work. After some on-again, off-again stuff, when he started using, Jessica eventually gave him the ultimatum, like, get, you know, get it together or get out. Um, So Tommy got really pissed off and took off to Tennessee. He broke into the home of Debbie Harris and her daughter, Ambria. I really like that name. Mm -hmm. He raped and stabbed Debbie while she was lying in bed. Her daughter heard the noise and encountered, encountered Tommy in the hallway when he chased her down and stabbed her as well. And unfortunately, both of them succumbed to those injuries. On April 18th, a festival known as Fiesta del Mercado occurred in San Antonio. Tommy Lynn was working this gig when he abducted a little girl named Mary B. Perez, who got separated from her family. It's really sad. Like, her whole family went, and one of her uncles went to a tent to go buy some beer, and she followed him, and he didn't know she followed him. And that's when Tommy abducted her. He forced her into his truck and took her away from the fair. He found a place where there was a dirty mattress outside and assaulted her and then strangled her with her own Mickey Mouse t-shirt. She was found 10 days later by a fisherman and his son um, in Azalon Creek. Haley McCone was a 13-year-old girl who lived in Kentucky. She was alone on the playground one day when Tommy Lynn spotted her swinging. He went over and just pushed her off the swings. He grabbed her and put a hand over her mouth and dragged her out of sight. He told her if she did what he wanted, he would not hurt her. He pulled her on top of him in the tall grass when he heard people approaching, and he made sure she could not make any noise, and the couple ended up walking right by, completely unaware of what they had just passed. When the couple was gone, Tommy Lynn raped the young girl on the dirty ground. Tommy Lynn went back on his word and used her T-shirt to choke her. He continued to choke her even after she passed out. Um, he knew how long it took to actually strangle someone. And we've, we've learned that it, it's not a quick thing to strangle someone. No, it takes a long time. It does. Um, Courtney, Tommy doesn't even try to coax people to go with him willingly. You know, like Clifford, Clifford Olson would offer jobs <laughs> or candy. Uh, Tommy just rips kids off the swings. 
Um, do you think he is just too impatient or is it more the thrill to just force them to cooperate from the get-go? Probably a little bit of both. Um, you know, his murders tended to be more impulsive and opportunistic, you know, without much thought or planning going into them. So that doesn't really give him time to create a good ruse mm. that would fit for all of the different victim types that he had. Yeah, he didn't, like, stalk his victims before he... No. Like, he didn't make a plan. Right. At least there's no evidence of that. And because he... His victims were from all demographics, um, he couldn't use, like, the same ruse. Mm -hmm. Like, Ted Bundy only went after, like, co-ed college girls. Right. So he could always use the same thing over mm -hmm. and over. Oh, my arm's broken mm -hmm. with this fake cast kind of thing. Yeah. Didn't offer, couldn't offer rides because I'm sometimes he did. He was just, mm -hmm. he's just all over. Yeah. So Tommy was actually arrested that night, um, but for public drunkenness, but then released. He skipped town after that, where he was later arrested in Madison, Wisconsin, for brandishing a box knife as a weapon. While in jail that time, he attacked another inmate, told a jailer he wanted to hang himself, and then was subsequently released. He decided he wanted Jessica back, so he went back to Del Rio, but that didn't end well, and there were allegations that he molested one of Jessica's daughters. Jessica and her family went to a relative's home, and Tommy headed to Oklahoma. So Bobby Lynn had her fateful um, encounter with Tommy. So there's Bobby Lynn and Tommy Lynn, no relation, um, at a truck stop in Kingfisher, Oklahoma. She was using a payphone trying to fight a ride, and she was only 14 years old. Tommy offered her a ride, and she accepted he offered her some cocaine, and she said she had no money to pay him for that cocaine. Tommy offered her a trade. Um, she got a bad feeling and asked that she be taken back to the truck stop. So the trade was, you know, I'll give you some cocaine if you do some sexual things with me. Um, of course, Tommy would not take her back to the, to the truck stop. He smacked her in the face and told her to shut up. He pulled off on a secluded road and forced her to perform oral sex on him. Before Tommy could rape her, Bobby Lynn started to hit Tommy and kicked him in the balls. She tried to get out of the truck, but Tommy shot her in the head before she could get out. After moving the body, he got back in the truck and headed to Texas. Back in Del Rio, the charges of molestation of one of Jessica's daughters were ruled to be unfounded. Not sure how that came about, but there you have it. Right. I want to be clear. Unfounded does not mean it did not happen. They just couldn't find enough evidence to take it further. Right. Okay. The group all moved back in with each other. It was at a church service they all attended that Tommy was introduced to the introduced to the Harris family. Now, one of his victims prior was last name was Harris. This is a totally different family. Just want to point that out. At one point, Tommy went over to their house and met the whole family. The children of the family claimed they felt uneasy around Tommy, but they didn't tell their parents about it. They just were like, no, we'll just ignore this. And we're going to come back to this Harris family soon. Tommy broke into the home of Danny and Kathy Freeman in Welch, Oklahoma at Christmas time in 1999. He crept into the bedroom of the two parents and shot them both in their beds and then eviscerated them. The gunshots woke up their 16-year-old daughter, Ashley, and her best friend, Laura, who was, or Loria, who was staying the night. While the two were huddled together, terrified, Tommy was in the kitchen pouring a puddle of gas on the floor and lighting it on fire. He found the two girls and forced them out of the house at gunpoint and into his van. He didn't recall exactly or didn't tell the author of the book what he did to them, but he did end their lives and dumped them in an isolated area where they still have yet to be recovered. 
All right, Courtney, we've made it pretty much to the end. One more murder to go. Sells snuck into the home of the Harris family, who I just talked about. Um, people he knew by now, they all lived in the same town. He saw them on occasion. Um, and he went through the house while they were sleeping. Um, I think he broke into the brother's room. The brother was deaf. And anyways, he ended up in the bedroom of 13-year-old Kayleen Harris. And Kayleen went by the name Katie. She was on the bottom bunk, and her friend, 10-year-old Crystal Searles, was in the bunk on top. Tommy woke Katie up and stabbed her to death, amongst other things he did to her. He did not notice that Crystal was on the top bunk until he turned to leave, and when he saw Crystal, he attacked her, slitting her throat and leaving her for dead. But Crystal did not die. She was badly injured. He had severed her windpipe and nicked her carotid artery. Um, In a daze, she stumbled out of the trailer looking for help. So she assumed that the adults in the house were also injured or dead. She didn't even, like, go to their bedrooms. Part of this was probably shock, I'm sure. So she went to a neighbor's house a quarter mile away, bleeding profusely, and rang the doorbell around 4.45 in the morning. Um, Her Betts heard the doorbell and asked, who's there? But Crystal couldn't speak, so she rang the doorbell again. Herb opened the, um, opened the door and saw the little girl covered in blood, unable to speak. He called the police, and his wife, Marlene, helped Crystal. Crystal was able to convey that she wanted a pen and paper to write with, and she wrote, quote, The Harrises are hurt, and when they asked who hurt her, she wrote, quote, This guy. She also wrote, quote, Will I live? Herb assured her she would be okay, even though he didn't really believe it. Um, You can see these notes online, the ones that she wrote. They were introduced into evidence. Um, I'm going to try to, like, post them later in the Instagram story. Mm -hmm. Crystal had to be airlifted to University Hospital in San Antonio due to the extent of her injuries, but she did survive. In fact, she was able to help a sketch artist draw Tommy Lynn, even without being able to speak. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah, like right after she got out of surgery, she like wanted to talk to the police Mm -hmm. right away. So meanwhile, um, the Harrises did not know what had happened. When the police came to their trailer, they thought, you know, everything was fine. The police entered the trailer and found Katie in her room, bloodied and murdered. And of course, this was devastating for the family who had been sleeping soundly down the hall, completely unaware that all of this had happened to their daughter and her friend. So through Crystal's sketch, they were actually able to tell who it was. Um, you know, Tommy lived there for a while. He did have a record in that area. They brought in some mug shots of men resembling the sketch, and one of them was Tommy, and Crystal positively identified him. So at long friggin' last, on January 2nd, 2000, uh, 2000, police surrounded the home he lived in with Jessica and apprehended Tommy Linsells. They found the clothing he wore that night and the, the latest murder attempt, um, let me say that again. The, they found the clothing that he had worn the night that he tried to murder um, Crystal and did kill Katie. And even though it didn't look like there was any blood on the clothing, they did DNA analysis and there was blood. There was Katie's and Crystal's blood on his clothes. So I'm just going to sort of blast through the rest because I'm just kind of sick of this case. But he was found guilty of the murder of Katie and the attempted murder of Crystal. Um, this got him the death penalty. They were in Texas, remember? Mm-hmm. He then confessed to many of the other murders that we have covered. You know, some people think he might have lied about some um, because bodies weren't found or they weren't followed up on or, you know, whatever. There were also a few murders that the other states did want to try Tommy for, but Texas does not allow inmates on death row to leave the state for that 
for like no reason whatsoever. So he was not able to um, be tried or convicted of any other murders. Courtney, thoughts on all of this? And do you think that what we've covered were killings he did participate in? So, you know, Tommy Lynn Sells was a particularly special kind of psychopath. You know, I think it would be easy to call him a monster. Um, but I don't like to give these killers that kind of mythical distinction. Right? Like, ultimately, he was a broken, hurt, and rageful human being who did really terrible things. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and as for these murders um, that he has connected or police have connected to him... Um, You know, I don't really see a reason not to believe he's responsible for them. You know, unlike Henry Lee Lucas, who is known as the confession killer, who confessed to everything that was brought in front of him, um, you know, Sells did deny involvement in some of the murders that other jurisdictions, like, wanted to interview him about. Um, And we do have a loose timeline kind of for tracking his movements over time between his arrests and stints in hospitals and rehabs and things like that. So... Yeah, I don't see why he would lie. And like with Arthur Shawcross, um, Arthur's mental state made it made, was questionable as, you know, because he kind of believed his own delusions, it seems like. So mm-hmm. that was tougher. Like, did he do all of those? Mm-hmm. Tommy's not the same. Right. And I mean, it really, if you think about it, the most horrific descriptions of the crimes he mm-hmm. claimed to have committed um, work they actually found they found bodies yeah. of it the Jardine family yeah specifically um so in the book Tommy or when it was on the interviews I watched somewhere Tommy claims that he was addicted to murder how do you feel about that I think I believe that yeah right it was that yeah that mm-hmm. feeling we talked about back in episode one when he you know had his first kill and it gave him that that release, that dopamine hit of, you know, some of that pain. So I think he really was. I was watching a, it's on YouTube, but it was like an ABC special or NBC, some special where it was like right before he was put to death and he did like a death row interview. And he claims, and I call bullshit on this, but he claims why he killed so many children was to spare them what had happened to him as a kid. Hmm. How do you feel about that? To spare, you know, to spare you know, them. maybe like, <laughs> but he would be he would rape them and then torture them and kill them. How is that sparing yeah. them? I mean, he didn't rape all of them. No, but he did do some, or some. he would force them to fillet him. That's true. Yeah, I mean, in little um, the last one, Katie, mm-hmm. yeah, he did, he, did. he did fondle her before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. It's possible. It's not like a normal sort of logic. It's through a very twisted sort of logic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if he was thinking about being bounced around from home to home and not having a stable upbringing and mm-hmm. like if all of his, you know, if the parents died, then yeah. that would happen to them. Okay. Maybe. I mean, it could also just be bullshit because he's a psychopath. Yeah. He did say that in more than one interview. Well, okay. So Sells was ultimately put to death by lethal injection on April 3rd, 2014. When asked if he had any last words, he simply replied no. 
Texas does not offer death row inmates last meal options, so he ate whatever was on the menu that day. Um, but I think that's I think that's it, unless you want to, you know, give us some parting words about Tommy Lynn cells that we haven't covered. You know, I don't have anything more to say about him. I think that we've said everything there is to say. Yeah, I mean, for someone I had never heard of, um, which I just keep, the more and more we do this podcast, the more I'm like, they're worse than the, the last, better than the worst. Yeah, worse than the last ones. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's funny because every single book that we read says the most prolific serial killer in American history. Like they do every say that. single, the one I'm reading now for mm-hmm. our next case. It says that. In the title. <laughs> it does. Yeah. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I don't know. They just keep topping each other. Unfortunately, they keep topping each other. And it's it's horrible. It is horrible. Um, so I'm going to just say, um, just follow us on social media. I'm not going to do all of the spiels. I'm just going to put them into the show notes. Because those of you who have listened to us have heard it 54 times. That's true. If you don't know it by now. Yeah. But I'll put it in the show show notes. But please follow, listen, like, tell your friends. Um, Please help us grow. We're growing with you. We are. Um, And, you know, please let us know if you um, have anyone you want us to cover or any questions or, you know, feedback, all that good stuff. Okay. So, Courtney, are we going to do your special pod next time or... Should I go over my next killer? I don't remember what we decided to do for next week. We will do our our special episode next week. Okay, so we're going to take, not a break, but um, we are going to do something a little different next week. Courtney is going to get in-depth on um, one of the Cluster B personality disorders that many of these, if not all of these, serial killers have. And um, we're going to look at it pretty in-depthly. I think I just said in-depth twice. You did. And I think it'll be really interesting. I, I mean, I find it interesting. And I'm assuming people who listen to our podcast uh, are somewhat interested in the mental aspect of these serial killers since that's what we try to. Right. Know, that's kind of highlight. the whole point of our podcast. Yeah. So we'll do a little bit more of the mental side mm-hmm. and less yeah. of the killer's side. But then back we'll with have, a new we'll, one. <laughs> we'll go back to another one of a dude I had not heard of. And I'm like, what the actual F? Who may also be the most prolific yes. serial killer. <laughs> no, it, they are. History. Based on the cover of the book, they are mm-hmm. the most prolific. Um, so, Courtney, what do we do when we encounter a man who gives us scary, creepy vibes? Go nuts, go home, and go to therapy. That's right. All right. Stay safe, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.